Open your Bibles with me to the Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. I don't know if you've experienced this lately. And maybe you've never experienced this in your life. But if that's true, you're either dead <laughs> or you haven't been a Christian for very long or alive for very long. What's amazing to me is how current, which shouldn't be amazing to me, how current and how real the Bible is. This is a living book. It is God speaking to you every day, speaking to you to encourage you, speaking to you to inform you, speaking to you to correct you, speaking to you to to direct you. Whatever it is you need, understand this, He knows what you need. Every day when you get up and you open your Bible, He knows what you need. So when I challenge you that when you open this for your devotion, however you do that, whenever you do that, because you do do that, don't you? Then what you ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see what you need to see that day. What do I need to see? And my ears to hear what I need to hear today. Galatians chapter 6. Well, let's start in verse 7. This is not the message, but... Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, that's talking about a number of things. It can talk about the time that you spend in communion with the Holy Spirit. The time that you spend is seed. So the time you spend in the Word of God, the time you spend with God is seed that you're planting, that you're sowing. And what you sow, you will reap. You will get back again. So if you're spending all your time watching Guiding Light or As the Stomach Turns or whatever it is, or or CNN, Fox News, MSB, whatever they are, all this stuff of the world, then what's going to come out of you is the stuff of the world. See, God's made us like soil. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 said that... That, that, that talks about the, the most important parable to understand is the sower who sows the seed. And the seed is the Word of God. And you're the one that chooses how it's sown and where it's sown and how much is sown. So be not deceived. That tells me we can be deceived, that we can think we can sow whatever we want and expect to reap something else. We're deceiving ourselves. So if you don't like what you're reaping, look at what you're sowing. Uh, We'll move along. That's very popular. (laughs) Will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Here's the verse I wanted to get to. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good. Let us not grow weary while doing good. Let us not grow weary while doing good. Bible scholars estimate that Paul wrote this book somewhere around 55 A.D. Here we are, almost 2,000 years later, and the same thing is happening. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul had to encourage the churches in Galatia to not grow weary. We like new and exciting things, don't we? Let's see, three of you do. Okay, that's good. I'll meet you right after church. We'll do something new and exciting. (laughs) Now, we love to start a new job or have a new new dress or a new shirt or a new suit or something new or going on a new vacation or finding, meeting somebody new. New things are exciting to us, right? But doing the same thing that's right day after day isn't quite so exciting, is it? I mean, you get up and you do the same thing today you did yesterday. I'm, he's, notice he's talking about good things. Don't go weary in doing good things. That means it's not only extremely possible that you can grow weary, it's highly likely that you will. Because we're human. And if we don't see something exciting, if we're not seeing wonderful results, if we're not seeing what we expect then we get weary and the next step after weary is discouraged. And that's what the enemy's after. Paul says, don't grow weary in well-doing. 
That means, I think sometimes we have this, this strain, you know, our, it, the, most of the trouble we get into is because we don't think right. I'll say that again. Most of the trouble we get into is because we don't think correctly. That's why the Bible tells us in Romans 12, too, to be transformed by changing how you think. That's basically what that verse says, by the renewing of your mind, which means to change how you think. And you're to change how you think so that you think the way God thinks. How does God think? That's why he gave you that book that's sitting in your lap. We get weary because we're not looking correctly at where we are and what we're going through. That's how we become weary. We become weary because we are expecting some results and we're not seeing them yet. Years ago, there was a speaker we had here, and, and he, 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 every once in a while, you ever something that just it changes your life because it changes how you see things. It gives you an understanding of what's going on. He says, frustration and discouragement always comes because you're expecting something here and you're experiencing something down here. And this gap between what you're expecting up here and what you're experiencing down here, this gap is where you get discouraged. So you've either got to change your expectation or what you're experiencing. And when it comes to the things of God, that's the same thing that's true. What we expect, though, is determined by what God's Word says. Sometimes what people do is they're down here experiencing one thing down here and they're reading God's Word that gives you an expectation up here. So what they do is lower their expectation down to where they're living. And they basically say, well, it must be God's will. There's a whole camp in the Christian church. There's a whole part of the body of Christ that believes in whatever happens must be God's will. And there's a certain, there's a certain benefit that you get out of learning just to accept things the way they are. And you've got to be careful because the Word of God just says in certain places to learn to be content with where you are and what you have. But that doesn't mean you can't grow, you can't increase, you can't, you can't mature, you can't, you know, it doesn't mean you can't do that. He's talking about the inner attitude. The, the Bible talks so much more about the heart than what's happening on the outside. In other words, he's saying don't be discontent. That's why the Bible says so much about being thankful. So you've got one part of the body of Christ that says, well, the, I, know the, I know God's Word says. I know God's Word says. Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe you receive them and you shall have them. I know they go Mark 11, 22 and 23 and 24 in the Bible, but... I know it's in there, but... I'm not experiencing that down here. I know it says that up here, but I'm not experiencing that down here. So what they do is they lower, they find some way to reinterpret what God says in light of what they're experiencing so they can decrease their level of frustration. It also increases your failure rate. (laughs) And let me tell you what's wrong with that thinking. Uh, This is just whatever's coming out of me this morning. What's wrong with that thinking is, first of all, it just eliminates as if the devil's not around. Now, we don't go around seeing the devil on every every doorknob. The devil's not the cause of all your trouble. I said, the devil's not the cause of all your trouble. The cause of most of yours is you. (laughs) Just not doing what you know to do. (laughs) That's the cause of most of your stress and most of your trouble. But the devil is real. Jesus was tempted by him. Jesus cast demons out. But that philosophy basically, basically says... Whatever happens must be God's will. See, that's wonderful because it takes all the responsibility off of me. I'm just hanging on to get to heaven. But that's not what we're here for. Jesus says several places that says of him that he's finished his course. He's seated at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made his footstool. So there's a work to be done to complete the victory that he won of making his enemies his footstool, and that assignment has been given to the church, and that's you and me. 
So we're not to just sit around and get by and hope we make it to the end. But we are here to overcome. We are here to be victorious, not in ourselves, but in Christ, because we are His body on the earth. We are His representative on the earth. What the world thinks of the church is what they think of Him. And you and I are a part of that church. So on the one hand, we think, well, the world, the church falls into this deception, which is, well, whatever happens, happens. It must be God's will. Well, that's interesting. Jesus didn't seem to understand that. Because there's this particular scene in the Bible where Jesus has been on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, brought them up on the mountain. And while he's up there, the Bible says his body was transfigured. What that means is literally the glory that was in him began to shine out of him, and they began to see his glory shining out of him. And then there appeared with him Elijah and Moses, if I remember correctly. This is called the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter wants to make a church out of that experience And when he does it, they disappear and things go back to the way they were before. On the way down the mountain, Jesus tells them not to tell anybody until after he's been raised from the dead. They get down to the bottom of the mountain and there's a commotion going on. There's this big commotion going on in the the staff that he left down there because he left nine of them down there. And this father comes running up to Jesus and said, I brought my son to your disciples. He's cast by demons into fires, he's got uncontrollable, and I brought him to the disciples, and they couldn't cast the demon out. If that philosophy is true, then why didn't Jesus say, well, I guess it's not my Father's will? Because his own disciples prayed, and it didn't happen then why didn't Jesus conclude from that, oh, if they prayed, it didn't happen, that means it's not my Father's will. But isn't that what people do today? Well, I prayed, it didn't happen, it must not be God's will. Jesus didn't know that. He's not as smart as we are. Hmm. What did he say? No, bring him to me. He cast that demon out, sets that boy free. Now the disciples are beginning to wonder. And they come to Jesus after everybody's left and said, Master, now listen carefully what they said. They didn't say, why didn't God answer our prayers? They said, why couldn't we cast him out? Jesus' answer was, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. In other words, you've got to be at another place in your walk with the Lord for this authority to flow through you. See, it's not like, oh, I've got to pray and I've got to fast. How much did they pray? How much did they fast? That's legalism. It's not based on what do you do. It's based on your flow with Him, your connection with Him. Remember the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, comes to Jesus and says, My servant's lying at home, grievously tormented by, by, by this disease. And Jesus says, I'll come. And the, the centurion says, No, this is a Roman officer. You don't need to come. You don't need to come and lay hands on him because I recognize the authority in you. Well, how did he recognize it? Because he says, I also am a man. You also, excuse me, you also are under, you also are in authority and under authority. In other words, he said, I recognize that you are somebody under authority and in authority because I'm someone under authority and in authority. It's not that God holds the authority back. He's given us the name of Jesus. But the reason the name of Jesus doesn't work in our lives to a greater extent, there are several reasons, but one of them is you don't believe it. We don't believe it. Another reason is we're not walking under that authority to that same degree. 
So the degree to which you're under his authority is the degree to which that authority can flow through you. It's like having a hose that flows water through it, but you've got it crimped. So it's letting some of it through, but it's not letting all of it through. So Jesus said, no, no, no. It's because you're not in the right place to do it. So one camp goes to that extreme and says, well, you know, it's, it's whatever will be, will be. So they lower this standard down. The other camp leaves it up here. The Word of God is the truth. And we get satisfied with living down here and we just get used to this gap. And what we become is religious. So on Sunday... We shout and jump because we all believe the Word of God's the truth. This is what the Word of God says we can do. But we live our life down here and we learn to live life on two different levels and get comfortable with it. The problem is you can't get comfortable with it because you weren't made that way because God lives in you and the Holy Spirit is in you. I know He's called the Comforter, but there's a certain time in which He's a discomforter. Because Jesus said part of his assignment is to convict or convince us. That's making you uncomfortable. And so that weariness often comes from that gap between what we see is possible and where we're to be and where we're living. And what the enemy wants you to do is just accept it, fall into this malaise and this weariness and just kind of sit back down and just... Go through the motions. I'm in church. I went to church today. Was it good? Yeah, it was good. He did well. <laughs> he did okay. Was he on today? Yeah, he's kind of on today, you know. And we go out and eat and go through our routines and just, you know, go home and, oh, we got to get up. Well, tomorrow, maybe some of you don't, but get up and go to work tomorrow and go through our routine. And, and you're part of your routine, maybe I get up and I read my Bible and I talk to God and I, you know, Okay, I've talked to God, now I go to work, I go through this routine, and the more you go through it, the wearier you get, and 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 the wearier you get. And that was going back on 55 AD. The Bible says there's no temptation that's come up to you that's not common to man. That's good news, because that means that book's got instructions on how to get out of it. And the first instruction is don't do it. <laughs> Isn't that nice and simple? It's not a 14-step program. He just says don't get weary in well-doing. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Don't get weary in well-doing. Why? Because for in due season you shall reap if you do not Lose heart. In other words, if you don't quit, you win. In other words, if you don't quit, you win. If you don't quit, you win. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for you will reap in due season... If you do not lose heart, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Now, as we've talked about before, the book of Hebrews is written, some think it's the Apostle Paul, some think it may have been Timothy, but what we do know is the Holy Spirit, and that's what counts. Written to the Jewish believers 
who had, through the persecution, were scattered up mainly through what was then Asia Minor. And they were being tempted to go back and practice their old Jewish rituals and mix them together with Christianity. Understand this. The pressure is always on the church to compromise the purity of Christ, of who he is. And it's amazing what people will swallow. I discovered this summer that there are actually quote-unquote Christian churches that are merging their doctrine with Muslim. And they're calling themselves Christlams. That's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. Well, keep that, keep the thought where I was going because I want to, this is wherever we're going, we're going. (laughs) We may come back here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. What? I know, but I'm changing it. I told you it's one of those days. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This was in my notes, and now I know why. Verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. I know I'm driving the translators. They like to have the scriptures ahead of time, but we're going to follow the Holy Spirit this morning. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. Indeed, you would bear with me, for I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. The analogy here is a father giving his virgin daughter to a husband. And he said, I've I've brought... Obviously, they weren't chaste spiritually, but because of the blood of the Lamb, they've been washed clean and made chaste in Christ's eyes. But now they were not living in that relationship with Him. They were compromising it spiritually. Verse 2, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste version to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity. That word has two meanings to it, simple and pure. From the simplicity or the purity that is in Christ. For if he comes, if he who comes preaches another Jesus than whom we preaches, preached, or if you receive a different spirit which we've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you may well put up with it. In other words, don't receive another Jesus. Don't receive another Jesus. The way you keep yourself from being weary is by refreshing your relationship with Him. When we were married 44 years ago, I mean, I came from a broken home. My mother was married twice. My father was her first husband. My father was married four times. So I did not have a, a lot of confidence going into this that I could fulfill, that I could stay married to the same person for the rest of my life. And nowadays, it's even harder to have that confidence in yourself. I just knew I didn't want to get divorced. I didn't go, want to go through what my parents went through. Anita's parents stayed married, but she didn't want to go through a divorce either. So we decided in the beginning, and we weren't saved, we're not getting divorced. Murders may be an option. <laughs> We didn't say anything about murder. And there have been a few times I've seen a look in her eye that made me wonder what thought was passing through her mind. (laughs) But we vowed we would not 
get divorced. And we've tested that. <laughs> I forgot where I was going with it. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> My concern was then, how do, how, do you, how do you live with somebody for 44 years or for the rest of your life and not get bored with each other? Wake up looking at the same person every day? And that's what goes through people's minds. Well, I'm tired of you. I'm going to go find somebody new and exciting. This isn't working out so well. If we could just get him straightened out, or if I could just get her straightened out, but I can't, so I'll go find somebody that's already straightened out. Yeah. But that's the thinking. That's the deception. So what happens is we get bored in the relationship. And part of what does that is the day in and day out routine. You get up in the morning, you do the same thing. You go through your day and basically do the same thing. You come home, have dinner together, whatever. You go to bed, you get up in the morning, you know, and you do it with the same person day in and day out, 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 10 years, day in and day out, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30, 35 40, 44, then on and on and on and on and on. We're the same person. Not only that, we don't look exactly the same. She's pretty close. Did I do that okay? (laughs) She is. She's prettier today than when I fell in love with her first time. She really is. Maybe I better end now and just forget. <laughs> it's true. How, how do you stay faithful to one person? Because you get bored. And then it dawned on me one day, boredom is an inner attitude. Boredom is an inner attitude. It's a choice I make. All depends on how I look at the situation. And then I realize if we're going to live together for the rest of our lives, I don't want to get bored with this. So there's something we need to do. And so what it was is we began to work on our relationship. And that requires communication. It requires spending time together. It requires getting to know each other. And yes, that's not, not, every day is not, you know, waking up in the morning with this beautiful symphony orchestra playing in the background. Rose petals just kind of falling through and roll over and look at her and say, oh dear, isn't this a beautiful day to be? Now, there's some days you get up and hair's like this and breasts like that and you just look at each other and you get up and move. Did you make the coffee yet? And you go through the humanness of life. How do you keep the passion? How do you keep from getting bored? Well, first of all, it starts with the commitment that even if you're bored, you're not getting out of it. It starts with understanding that this is a blood covenant. This is a covenant whereby I give myself to her. See, boredom looks at what I'm getting out of it. Boredom looks, well, I'm not being entertained enough. Uh, you know, I'm not feeling fulfilled enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough. It's all focused on me. But the essence of a covenant is what I bring into it and what I give to it. I don't know that I've ever talked to a husband or a wife that was bored in their marriage that spent most of their focus on taking care of and giving to their spouse. One of the concepts that turned me around and this was earlier in our marriage, was when I discovered that love was not an emotion. Because that was the fear when I got married. Oh my goodness, I'll wake up someday and I won't feel in love with her. Well, I've had a number of days I woke up where I didn't feel in love. But what did that have to do with it? What did that have to do with it? And yes, we go through times of busyness where that, that closeness, we don't feel right there, but we know what to do to get it back. But the point is, after 44 years, I'm not weary in well-doing in this because the rewards back out of it are surpassing. 
But if that's true in a marriage relationship, isn't it going to also be true in my relationship with my Lord? The reason we get well do- weary in well-doing is because we do what the church that Jesus wrote a letter to is we forgot our first love. The freshness of the relationship. There may be some of you out there that are saved and you've never had that freshness. Some of you out there that have had that freshness and you've lost it. And now you're going through the motions and you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, but you're doing it. You need to ask yourself sometime, why do I go to church? I mean, be honest with yourself. God, God knows the answer already. It's okay. Why am I going to church? Why, why am I, quote unquote, serving the Lord? Is it so I'm going to go to heaven and not go to hell? Well, that's a pretty good reason. But if that were only reason that God saved you, He would have taken you out of here a long time ago. So you wouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> why, why are you here? Why do you go to Faith Christian Center? Why do you come to church on Sunday? Why do you, why do you worship with tithes? Why do, why do we do what we do? Because God, it's got to come out of the heart. It's got to come out of the heart. And notice what he says here. He said, I, I fear less after bringing you to Christ that Satan would deceive you as he deceived Eve so that you would walk away from the purity and simplicity of Christ. You know how you came to Christ? I know the details are different, but it ultimately came down to one simple thing. Jesus said, come follow me. He didn't say, join my church. He didn't say, join my team. He didn't say, look, I need some workers in children's church, so, I, so would you come, you know. Ever, ever look at somebody, and I, we've done this, you know. you know. You look at somebody, boy, they'd make a great Christian. What we're saying is, boy, they have talent and things they could bring into the church. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. It's your relationship with Jesus, which is to be simple and pure, which means there's nothing else mixed in with it. The purity and the simplicity of your relationship with Jesus. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 10. Because that's what was happening in the church, the churches that this letter is written to. There were people that were coming into them because they were separated from the mother church. They were separated from the, the sor- what had originally been the source of their teaching and their, their training and their equipping. And they were out on the fringes of the Christian world at that time. And because they were out there and they were not necessarily in the fellowship with... And of course, we didn't have... Back then, they didn't have Facebook and all those wonderful things we have today for staying in communication with one another. They had to send letters and things like that. So they were, they were feeling disconnected. And in the midst of that, these people called Judaizers began to move in among them. And they were Jewish, believe, Jewish people that were trying to pull them back into the Jewish practices of the law and mix the two together. So they were saying Jesus is the Son of God, but they were saying to be saved, to be a child of God, you've not only got to love Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you've also got to keep the law. So there was confusion about, well, what's the position of the high priest? There was confusion about all their traditions. And so as you read through the book of Hebrews, what you see is it's a... It's a series of comparisons of Christ, first of all, to angels, then to Moses, then to the high priest, showing that he is supreme over all of them because, this gets us back to our original theme, he is the Son of God. And then, now having done that, he deals with, having corrected them, he deals with how they're to handle that correction. And chapter 10 focuses kind of a crescendo of, 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 the, of what Christ has done for us, walking literally through the tabernacle and saying He is the tabernacle. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. 
It is his blood that was shed because his blood that was poured out in the real throne room, not the Holy of Holies in the tent, but the real throne. Because of that, now we have full confidence and assurance and access to come to him with a heart, a conscience that's been cleansed from dead works. It's really a crescendo. But having said all that, now he begins to move into how do you enact that? Now what do you do? So he gets down to the end of chapter 10. Of course, it wasn't written in chapter and verse at the time. And he tells them some things to do. Verse 22 says, Let us therefore draw near with a pure, with a true heart, a sincere, pure heart, in simplicity. Draw near in full assurance of faith, having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and your bodies washed with pure water. Second thing, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. That's the words out of your mouth. When you're getting weary, watch the words out of your mouth. Part of why you got weary is what you were saying. So there are times I'll walk around and what I'll say is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because the reason I was feeling weary because I was trying to do all things through John. And John runs out. But Christ never runs out. And I've been joined to him. So it's not in my strength. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Later on in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians it tells, talks about Paul was so frustrated, got so weary, so frustrated, says he cried out to God three times to take this pressure away from him. The thorn in the flesh it was not sickness and disease, it was pressure. Three times I cried to God to remove it, and God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. Some people read that as God saying no. How do you get no out of sufficient? <laughs> My grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, I've got it now. I learned to glory in my weakness. Because in my weakness, his strength is made perfect or complete. Another reason you're weary is you're trying to do it on your own. God doesn't want you doing it on your own. He didn't give you an assignment say, go do it, and when you're done, come back and I'll grade you on it. Your assignment is to come to Him, be joined to Him, and allow Him to work through you with His strength and His might and His grace and His ability. When you do that, you don't get weary because He doesn't get weary. That's why Isaiah says, Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not get weary. Why? Because they've waited on the, most of us, instead of waiting, we're way out ahead of them. This needs to be done. All right, God, I'll take care of it. And we're running out there to do it. And he just stands there. All right, hot shot. You need to find out what you can do. I already know. And we get out there, and we're running into battles. We're running into this opposition. Our legs are getting tired. We're tempted to fall and sit back. And what he wants us to do at that point is what Paul did. Cry out to Him, turn around, and come back to Him. Back to your relationship with Him. Back to your relationship with Him. So He tells us to draw near to, draw near to Him in full assurance of faith. The next thing He tells us to do, hold fast our confession. Verse 23, without wavering. Why? Just so see, we can see how long we can hold on? No, because He who promised is faithful. Number three, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Number four, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves as is the manner of some, but exhorting or encouraging one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now let's go down to verse 35. Therefore, because of all this, do not cast away or throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. 
For yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just, that's us. How many of you have been justified? The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but we're those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now the faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And he goes on now in the rest of chapter 11 to give us example after example after example of men and women who've been under pressure, who've been weary and well-doing, but instead of fading and quitting and giving up, they continued on because they made a good confession of their faith. They did not forsake their assembling together, and they walked by faith. And the result is they did not throw away their confidence. Notice your confidence has tied to it a great promise of reward. How many of you want a great reward? Well, it's tied to your confidence. So when you're tempted to quit and sit out and throw it away, understand what you're throwing away has something very valuable tied to it. <laughs> Years ago when I was practicing law in Boston, a large law firm, we handled a closing and at the end of the day we put the checks together to send to the bank or to deposit in the bank and there was a $35,000 check missing. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money to me. (laughs) So what did we do? We didn't just sit down and get weary. We went around trying to figure out where it went. What happened was it was stuck in an envelope that was thrown out. Fortunately, we found the envelope and the check. But that envelope didn't seem to mean much. It was something to be discarded. It was finished what it was there to do. So... It was like being weary. It was done. And so the secretary just threw it out, not realizing there was something attached to it worth $35,000. Your confidence has attached to it your reward. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, therefore, don't throw it away. Now, how do we not throw it away? That's what chapter 11 is in there for. So that we'll learn to walk by faith and not by sight. A few weeks ago on Tuesday night, I was in here. We were praying. Somebody else was leading prayer, and I was praying, walking, praying the Spirit, walking up and down that aisle. And I, just, I was weary that day. I was just what I'm talking about. I was weary, saying, here we are, praying again. I don't feel anything. There's no lightning happening in here. You know, you start to begin to think of people that you've talked to and one after another after another and the circumstances just didn't sound good. It just kind of weighs in on you and I just came in here like, I don't even want to come here tonight but I'm here because I'm supposed to. So I'm praying up and down there and, and see, this is one of the values of coming and praying together. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. Took me to, in, me, in here, He took me to 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 17 and 18 says, For we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary. They're going to change. But the things that are not seen are eternal. The Spirit of God was saying to me, you're paying attention and you're looking at things that you can see. And that's what's weighing you down. I didn't tell you to do that. He said, I told you to walk by faith. Faith is what you're looking at. Do you walk through your day looking at what God's Word says? I don't mean the Bible in your face, but your mind thinking about it. When a situation arises, your mind says, yeah, but what's God's Word say? I know I've heard rumors that they're going to lay people off. Living under that kind of pressure can weary you out. But what does God's Word say? God's Word says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed out begging for bread. So which one of those two are you looking at? Isaiah says, which report will you believe? 
And the writer here is saying, saying that the, reason, the way you'll hold on to your confession, the way you'll hold on to your confidence and not throw away, is to learn to walk by what God says and not by what you see. And in the day and age you and I learn to live in, we've got to learn to do that. Because we're in a place where almost everything you see doesn't look good with your natural senses. But God's Word has not changed. God's Word has not changed. Now we're going to skip through 11, go to 12. This all flows together. Having gone through all these examples of people that walked by faith, now the writer tells us what to do. Chapter 12 begins with the word therefore. That's what it means. Considering everything that I've said before, this is what you're to do. Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now what he's talking about there is the people he just listed in in chapter 11. What he's saying is they're not just go to heaven and say, well, okay, my job's done. It's now your turn. You've ever seen or been part of a relay team? I was in high school. Because we had to have a sport. (laughs) And I love sports. But God did not endow me with the ability (laughs) to fulfill that dream. So I had to do it vicariously. But in that school, I had to be in a sport. And, and, uh, and the, uh, the only one that didn't involve dangerous contact <laughs> required running. Now, I wasn't good at either, but I figured running was safer <laughs> than looking at some 300-pound high school senior with, armed with pads wanting to take me out. And my assignment on the track team was to make sure nobody else finished last. Some of you get that on the way home. That was my role. Everybody has a role. They did not make me part of the relay team. Because when you have four men running in a relay team, they all have to be able to run. You're not planning for somebody coming last. And what I observed was this. You have the, 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 the way they were designed, if I remember correctly, is, uh, is they, they, they didn't just pick which, who was to run in which position based on how much they liked you, it was how good you were. The guy that ran last was the fastest. And I don't remember, some of you may, whether the first or the second guy was the second fastest. But there was a strategy to this. So the first guy would go out, he'd set the pace. And he'd come around, especially the 440, come around the whole track, and the other guy's standing there, and there's a lane in which they exchange the baton. And so the second guy starts running, getting up to his warm-up speed, getting going, and the first guy comes up, hands the baton, and the second guy just takes off as fast as he can, runs all around. Then the third guy, to the third guy, comes all around and hands the fourth guy. Now, what did not happen was interesting, at least on our team. When the first guy finished his race, he's done. Hands the baton off. He didn't then say, good luck, just walk off and go to the showers. I'll read about it in the paper tomorrow. The second guy, when he finished, he didn't just hand the baton off and run up and say, well, I've done my part. I'm done. I'm glad I've finished. I'm going to go get a shower and go on. No, what did they do? They stood there on the sidelines cheering their teammates on. Why? Because it's the same team. And it's not, well, the first leg won the race, but the second team, second leg came in second, the third leg came in fourth, and the fourth leg came in third. No. The team came either first, second, third, or fourth. Together. Therefore, they're part of the same race. So even though the first guy's run, he's standing there encouraging, challenging the second guy, who may be making up for his slowness or weakness, or that he stumbled. And when the fourth guy's going around, the other three are there screaming, yelling, encouraging. Sometimes they're running along with him, saying, go on, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. That's what the writer's talking about here. Therefore, having such a great cloud of witnesses who've gone on before us, it's the ones listed in chapter 11. 
It's Moses. It's Elijah. It's David. It's all those that are listed in there. They didn't go on to heaven and they said, we did our part. We made it. I hope these guys make it. I don't know about them. No. The Bible says they're looking over the banister or out of those, wherever they're, they're cheering you on this morning. Pastor Sam is cheering us on this morning. Some of your relatives are cheering you on this morning. They have a stake in how well we finish because we're the same team. We're the body of Christ. See, we kind of think of the body of Christ as Faith Christian Center. Or we think of the body of Christ, well, we're the church. But the body of Christ is not just the saints alive on the earth today. There's a great picture I have of this. When the children of Israel were crossing from Egypt into Canaan, in, into, the, into the wilderness, they went through the Red Sea that God parted, remember? Well, there were somewhere between 2 and 5 million people. It says there were 600,000 fighting men. So that extrapolates to five, 2 to 5 million people, or something like that. There's a point in time, at any given time, when some of the nation of Israel was already in the wilderness. Some were still on the dry riverbed, and some were on the shore of Egypt waiting to get into the dry riverbed. But it was still one nation. It's interesting, when we were down in Texas visiting our, our daughter and granddaughter a month ago, she put on this movie that they like, which is cute, which is a good movie, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Everybody ever see Fiddler on the Roof? There's a song in there where this young, this young uh, uh, um, uh, seamstress, uh, uh, Taylor, is given permission to marry the girl he's in love with, although she'd been betrothed to somebody else. And he says, you know, he sings this wonderful song, they go out in the woods and they just, you know, and he's, he's singing about how God delivered Egypt, Israel from Egypt, but he didn't sing about, how, oh, how wonderful God delivered Israel from Egypt. He said he delivered us. The Israelites, I mean, they have this image that we're all, they're all one family. Even though their ancestors are the ones for whom God parted the Red Sea. The words were, he did it for us. They have that concept. God's telling us here, we have to have that concept. When you're feeling lonely and you're feeling weary and you don't know why am I doing this, read Hebrews chapter 12. Because it tells you, there are others who have laid their lives, they're martyrs, who gave their lives so that the gospel could be preached in places. There are people that laid their lives down in this country so that we could be free enough that we could stand here today and preach the gospel openly. They have a stake in how well we finish. And we may well be that last leg of the race. If so, then somehow God's determined we're the fastest and we're the best. I don't feel the fastest. I don't feel the best. Well, I just thought of this. This is how we are. We know more than they knew. They couldn't decide, do I take my Bible in electronic form today? Which translation do I bring with me today? They didn't have them. We have so much more. So there's so much more potential that God can do through us if we'll not get weary in well-doing. When you're tempted to sit down, and quit. There's saints looking at you, saying, I know what that's like. David, King David. Oh, I was talking to some of my sons about this yesterday, the other day. David, called by God to be king. God's taken the anointing away from Saul because he wouldn't serve him correctly, serve man and not God, and anoints this boy David to be king. But David doesn't get the throne that day. See, we think it ought to happen that way. Instead, just the opposite happens. Saul now gets bitter against him and now takes his army, instead of chasing the Philistines, now chases David to destroy him because he's jealous. 
So David has to flee. Some men gather around him, called David's mighty men, but their credentials were not exactly past muster with background checks today. Most of them were escaped criminals. They were people that hadn't paid their taxes. They were not the most reputable of people, but they served David. And David's chased, being chased, doing everything right. Saul's doing everything wrong, and Saul's winning. And at one point, they've been out in battle with Saul, and they come back and find out that the Philistines, I think it is, had taken everything they own, their wives, their children, and everything. Gone. And they're doing what's right. That's what Galatians says. Weary and... See, we kind of have in the back of our mind, well, I know I haven't been doing things right, so therefore I kind of understand. But it's when you're doing things right. David comes back into camp and finds it's all gone. His soldiers have finally had it. They've been faithful and loyal up to that point, and they turn on him. Now he's alone. Feels like God's left him. That's where some of these psalms come from. Feels like God's left him. His own men have turned on him. He's all by himself. There's no one to turn to. There's no helpline to call. So what does the Bible said he did? Did he... Now, you can be tempted to quit if everybody has turned against you. I don't mean they just walked away. They want to kill you. Your own men want to kill you. You'd be tempted to go out and sit there and suck your thumb, get your bank blankie, and say, take me out of here. I want to die. Well, Elijah did that. Says, God, kill me. He obviously didn't mean it. God shows up and says, no, no, I've got a remnant that hasn't turned away yet. What David doesn't realize, or what it says he did, it says he encouraged himself in the Lord. In other words, he grabbed himself by the back of the neck and says, you are going to praise God. He encouraged himself And the Lord, not realizing that the next day, Saul and his son are going to be killed in battle, and the people are going to come for David to make him king. His vision, God's calling, was that close when he was at the greatest moment of quitting. Because the enemy understands that if he can get you to quit, he'll win. David didn't quit and he stepped into his destiny. See, sometimes you think it's going to happen incrementally. In David's case, it was in one day. In Joseph's case, it was in one day. He went in one moment from being a prisoner in the prison unrighteously and illegally to being prime minister of Egypt in one day. Your deliverance, God's will in your life, may be just around the corner tomorrow. Say, well, that's, but don't throw away your confidence. It has a great recompense of reward. Turn with me to Revelation, and we'll just quickly go through Revelation and then we'll close. No. (laughs) I just want to show you something. Revelation 2 and 3 are written to seven churches. One thing it has in common, there's two things they have in common. Jesus says something different to each one of these churches. And we're not going to go through that. I'm going to go through what he does say in common. Chapter 2, verse 7. This is the church at Ephesus. He says, To him, verse 7, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The next one is the church of Pergamum. Excuse me, the church of Smyrna. Down in verse 11, 211. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The next church is the church of Pergamos. Down in verse 17. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and a stone on which is written a new name, in which no one knows except him who receives it. The next church is the third church at Thyatira. And he says to that church different things. But in verse 26, uh, well, verse, verse 25, Hold fast what you have until I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my work until the end, I will give him power over the nations. Chapter 3. This is the dead church. It's in Sardis. Verse 5. And he who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the church at Philadelphia, which is the one church he doesn't have anything to correct them on. Verse 12, he says, He who overcomes, I will make to him, him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write them on a new name, write on him in my name, and he was ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the last church, verse 14, the Laodiceans, who were the lukewarm church, Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, and I will also overcome, as I also overcame and sat with my Father on his throne. He owes ears to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My brothers and sisters, it matters everything whether we overcome or not. It matters everything, whether we overcome or not. We don't have the time to go through what the benefit of overcoming was to each of those churches. But suffice it to say, it's summarized in what we've read in Hebrews 10. It's a great reward. I don't know about you, but I haven't come this far, going through what I've gone through, to quit. I haven't dealt with what I've had to deal with, the devils I've had to overcome, just some of the things within myself. I haven't come this far to sit down and to quit. Now, there are different ways of quitting. You can quit by just leaving Christ and going off and live your own life. You can also quit a more subtle way, and that's... Uh, I'm tired. I've been fighting for 30-some years. I'm tired of this. Just... When am I ever, when's everything, anything ever going to change? When's that job going to come? When's this healing going to come? When's what God's Word says going to come? I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of it. Shape up, John! Stand up, John. Who are you? Who are you? You are a child of the living God. The Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy, stir up the gift that's in you. You sometimes have to just stir it up. Sometimes you just got to get in your car, go out, turn the volume up, and yell at the top of your voice. Stir it up, but don't give in. Don't give in. There is a great... See, the moment of temptation to quit and weary is only temporary. It's so short. Oh, I know it seems so long. My pastor has been years. Yeah, but in the light of eternity, how long is that? Because the reward is forever. And when God says great reward, this isn't the home shopping network. Boy, do we have something great for you. This isn't some late night infomercial. Oh, do we have a... This is God who says, Oh, have I got something 
great for you. Don't throw it away because it's connected to your confidence. And the way you keep from growing weary is to keep fresh in your love relationship with the Lord. Be honest with Him. If you're struggling, just tell Him that. He's not going to fall off the throne. He knows it. He loves you. Let Him into the problems. Let Him into your life. Expect Him to do what He said He was going to do. And begin to talk that way. Talk that way. Talk that way. Talk that way. Talk to yourself. Get up in the morning. Look in the mirror. That's a child of God I'm looking at. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Watch how your feelings change. Watch how your feelings change as you declare the word of God with your mouth. Therefore, my brethren, do not become weary in well-doing. For in due season you will reap if you have not fainted or quit.